Good morning. A nuclear watchdog visits a Russian-held nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Disappointment with Saudi Arabia's decision to cut oil production. Biden pardons thousands of people charged with marijuana possession. But is it enough? And a bloody afternoon in Tompkins Square Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news. On Thursday night, President Joe Biden said the risk of Armageddon is the highest it's been since the early 1960s. Biden said at a fundraiser in New York for the Democratic Senatorial Committee, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. In October 1962, the United States and the Soviet Union were seemingly on the verge of nuclear conflict after the U.S. deployment of ballistic missiles in Turkey and Italy were countered by the Soviet deployment of similar missiles in Cuba. The president said, The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is a guy I know fairly well. He's not joking when he talks of using nuclear or biological or chemical weapons. Speaking to Democratic donors, Biden said he and U.S. officials were still trying to figure out Putin's off-ramp in Ukraine. Where does he find a way out, Biden asked. The president reiterated that the United States would continue to support Ukraine. International Atomic Energy Director General Rafael Grossi was in Ukraine Thursday, meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. They discussed the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree designating the plant, which has been controlled by Russian forces since early March, as Russian federal property. Zelensky says he considered the decision an illegal takeover, while Grossi said transferring the plant to Russian ownership is a violation of international law. For us, it is obvious that since this is a Ukrainian facility and the, the ownership is on, the, on uh, um, Energoatom, uh, any change will be a, a complex uh, issue and we are going to know or try to know more about it and the consequences. Zelensky called for a demilitarization of the nuclear plant, one of Europe's largest, to ensure the safety of the facility. The Ukrainian leader also demanded resumption of the plant's operation. But he was disappointed that Grossi wasn't stronger in condemning Russia for occupying the power plant. It was the key security point of our agreements. It was outlined clearly, demilitarization and full control by our nuclear workers. IAEA representatives did not protect members of independent media. We hope that the mission will still come to objective conclusions on the circumstances at the station. In yet stronger language, Ukraine's president seemed to call for a nuclear strike by NATO against Russia to prevent a nuclear attack. During an online conference, Zelensky called for, quote, preemptive strikes so that they, Russia, know what will happen to them if they use it, and not the other way around. The Kremlin responded that Zelensky was trying to spark a third world war. Russia has repeatedly said it's not considering a nuclear strike on Ukraine, but warned it'll use any means necessary in order to protect itself. Meanwhile, both Washington and London have admitted that it's unlikely that Moscow will deploy tactical nukes in the Ukraine conflict and have seen no indication of Moscow preparing such an attack. A Pentagon spokesperson speaking on Thursday. In terms of the, the, uh, the nuclear threats, you know, we've talked about this. Many people in our 
government uh, and in the international community to include Secretary Austin have, have highlighted the fact that this nuclear saber rattling is uh, reckless and irresponsible. As I've mentioned before, at this stage, uh, we do not have uh, any information that would cause us to change our strategic deterrence posture. Uh, and, and we don't assess that um, President Putin has made a decision to use nuclear weapons uh, at this time. Again, we're taking it very seriously. We'll continue to monitor. But in the meantime, again, our focus is on supporting Ukraine. And that was Brigadier General Pat Ryder. He's a spokesperson for the Pentagon. OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, plus that includes other countries than the original founders, frustrated an attempt by the United States and its allies to further isolate Russia with a cap on the price of Russian oil. It's meant to starve Russia of foreign exchange. Meanwhile, the United Kingdom pound fell to its lowest level in decades against the dollar, as Europe faces a cold and dark winter after much of its energy imports from Russia have been cut, including a sabotage attack against a key gas pipeline. Britain's finance minister, Nadim Zawadi, was in the United States this week. He says to help push through the oil price cap against Russia. The primary reason I am here uh, uh, in the U.S. is we want to get this oil price cap um, over the line. We have an important meeting tomorrow with the uh, G7 finance ministers, uh, and I am hopeful we'll be able to uh, uh, have a statement that uh, will mean that we can move forward at pace. Uh, to deliver this oil price cap. There's a lot going for the uh, uh, British uh, uh, economy as we deal with a dictator who is using energy as a tool. In this. So yeah, tough times, but I think we can, we can, we'll, we'll get through it and we'll come out the other end much more resilient. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden says he's disappointed with Saudi Arabia's decision to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day but his administration is looking for alternatives. Disappointment, and uh, we're looking at what alternatives you may have. Don't hurt him, man. Don't you knock him through the wire. There's a lot of alternatives. We haven't made up our mind yet. Will you meet President Putin at the G20 summit or APEC summit? That remains to be seen. Senator Chuck Schumer said Saudi Arabia's decision to ally with President Vladimir Putin's Russia to shore up oil prices was a grave mistake. Nevertheless, Biden appeared focused on countering OPEC by releasing more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and possibly seeking reproachment with oil pumping Venezuela rather than penalizing Saudi Arabia. With five weeks before an important election, gas prices that had fallen recently have been heading back up. Despite the heated and alarming rhetoric between the United States and Russia, there was one glimmer of hope that the two nations are still talking, but you had to look into space to find it. A SpaceX capsule carrying a Russian cosmonaut and the first Native American woman in space docked with the International Space Station on Thursday. One meter. Dragon, SpaceX on the big loop, contact and soft capture complete, attenuation in progress. And contact confirmed. Dragon made contact with the International Space Station at 2.01 p.m. Pacific, just off the west coast of Africa. 
Anna Kakina, the first Russian aboard an American spacecraft in decades, was accompanied by Native American commander Nicole Mann, Josh Casada of the United States, and Kochi Wakata of Japan. Mann is a member of the Wailaki of the Round Valley Indian tribes in California. And you're listening to the news. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Yesterday, President Biden pardoned thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law, adding his administration would review whether marijuana should still be in the same legal category or schedule as heroin and LSD. I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states, and criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. So today, I'm taking three steps to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offense, federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Second, I'm calling on all governors to do the same for state marijuana possession offenses. Third, the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule I substance, the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. So I'm asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate a process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Even as federal and local regulations of marijuana change, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Simple possession of marijuana became a federal crime in the 1970s, and about 6,500 people were convicted of having pot in their possession over the past 30 years, thousands of others in the District of Columbia. The pardons will not apply to people convicted of selling or distributing marijuana. The executive director of the New York State arm of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, known as Empire State Normal, is attorney David Holland. He says Biden's order is a small, but important step. So I think it's a tremendous step forward for Biden, um, considering he's a guy that was uh, a critical voice in the 80s and 90s of making sure that cannabis stayed in the Schedule One classification and that the penalties for that were significantly harsh. Um, so it's a step there. But, you know, he's passed a pardon for people uh, that have suffered a conviction for simple possession under the federal law. Uh, as a practitioner who's been around the federal courts, um, both working for the federal government and, you know, in a, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office to some degree, and as a criminal defense lawyer, I've never in those 30 years seen uh, a simple possession conviction ever. You know, the federal government spends a lot of time and effort to investigate what they think are drug conspiracy cases and never do have simple possession even charged in those cases. So. This applies to people that are maybe caught smoking a joint on federal land or, you know, potentially tried to cross the border with a joint or two on them. You know, those types of things. It's a pretty small group of people that this is impacting. So 
while it sounds tremendous, of the 29 million people that have been arrested in the United States for cannabis offenses, this is only impacting 6,500. So I'd say it's a, it's a pretty small number, but it's a good start. And why do you think they're taking such baby steps? 19 states have legalized it. 37 have medical marijuana. And they're worrying about 13 states. This is a very small step in federal recognition from the executive branch that something needs to happen with regard to the disproportionate impact, not on people of color versus others, but the impact that people convicted of cannabis offenses um, suffered collateral consequences that were pretty extreme relative to what is now considered to be legalized conduct in most of the states. Many states, I think it's 23, already have programs in place for people that have been convicted of cannabis crimes to seek a pardon and clemency. So Biden calling upon governors is really sort of rings hollow because there are so many of them doing so, but it would be great if all 50 you know, governors ended up joining together and granting clemency for these types of small crimes. But it's an important step, particularly for Biden, who had been very much an advocate for severe penalties for cannabis. Back in the 90s. In the 80s and 90s, when those laws that were passed, particularly sentencing guidelines were passed, that imposed significant penalties for cannabis, he was behind those as a senator. Um, he voted in favor of them, and I think he was even on some of the legislation. What about scheduling, the rescheduling of marijuana? It sounds like a, a really dramatic step, but rescheduling, which would take it out of Schedule 1, which is the most prohibitive, and move it, let's say, let's, there are five schedules. It went to Schedule 2. It would essentially be only something that's an anesthetic that would be used during surgery, you know, where they use, like, cocaine, they use morphine, they use those things. So if you were to reschedule it, as uh, and that's not exactly what Biden said. He said he was going to examine administratively examine the schedule. That certainly sounds like rescheduling. If you rescheduled it to two or three, you'd need a doctor's prescription. You'd need FDA to set up guidelines for how these things need to be packaged and dosages and everything else. And so, rescheduling would be a tremendous or have the potential to be a tremendous blow to all those 37 states that have medical programs in place and whole industries that have built up around those medical programs. It would, by creating a federal standardization all of a sudden that has to be administered through a federal program like other prescription drugs that have to go through a DEA-sanctioned pharmacological tracking system. If you had it at Schedule 2, it would only be able to be administered by an anesthesiologist. Right. So you wouldn't be able to go into a medical dispensary and obtain your medicine and leave. Cocaine, for example, is Schedule 2. Arguably, uh, they've deployed the entire U.S. military against the entire continent of South America to stop its importation. It can only be legally administered under very specific guidelines by people that are licensed to administer it, which are, at, at that point in Schedule 2, are anesthesiologists. You can't just walk into a pharmacy with prescription. You know, it wouldn't work. While well-intended, the best laid plans of mice and men go awry, what would happen with the reschedule is it could very much damage the industry as a whole, which Congress and the executive branch and the federal courts have actually indirectly taken great efforts and pains to take all actions they can to promote those medical programs to really let them flourish.
So mm-hmm. it would be a tremendous step backwards if it worked out like I, in the worst case scenario, like I envisioned. Does that mean they might be thinking of getting rid of this an archaic scheduling system? Maybe not getting rid of the scheduling system, but certainly descheduling cannabis would be the thing to do and let the states decide how they want to treat it. And that's effectively what the federal government has done. Like I said, along with Congress passing spending appropriations to leave the medical programs in place in the states, and the federal Mm -hmm. courts have upheld those things, and they've upheld contracts that are ancillary to the cannabis industry. So as a whole, I think the best thing they could do is deschedule rather than reschedule. David Holland is executive director of the New York State Arm of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, also known as Empire State Normal. And in local New York news, Mayor Eric Adams has been forced to scrap his plans to house asylum seekers in a tent city on Orchard Beach in the Bronx after the parking lot there flooded during the rains over the weekend. So those are cots being set up. There's already water under that tent. The location had been criticized as virtually inaccessible by public transportation. The mayor's new plan, he announced Monday, is to move the site to Randall's Island, another remote area that's prone to flooding. The city council on Wednesday joined the chorus of critics objecting to Adams' decision to relocate the migrant intake center. The council has suggested housing the migrants in several empty hotels and hiring unemployed hotel workers. The mayor said he was open to the idea. I'm glad they come in with the spirit of cooperation to come with a solution. Uh, If we're going to critique what we're doing during this humanitarian crisis that was created by human hands, uh, then we should come with great ideas. If they have some specific hotels that they're talking about, I'm looking forward to sitting down with the council and uh, Councilwoman Adrian Adams, our speaker, and come up with those solutions. The mayor also addressed crime in New York and what he said is a mental health crisis. The mental health problem is a crisis, and we need all of our partners to be engaged to address it because it can't be addressed just by the police. That's a revolving door system. 48% of our inmates at Rikers Island have mental health issues. Arresting someone, then putting them back out in the street again, taking them to the doctor, to the hospital, giving them medication for a day, and putting them back until they do something that's uh, life-threatening. That's just a failing system. And New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vossen said the problem feeding the apparent increase in emotionally disturbed persons on New York City streets and in subways is what he called social isolation after years of COVID restrictions. This is a, a huge issue for this administration. We have three major priorities, addressing our youth mental health crisis, addressing our rising rates of overdose, which underneath it all is also a mental health crisis, and addressing our crisis of serious mental illness, which is most closely connected to the events the mayor described and the events you're all asking about. People living with serious mental illness, of which There are nearly 300,000 in New York City, for the most part, are living their lives. They may even be amongst us today. They're just like you and me. They just have an illness. There's a small subset, a very small subset, in fact, that need assisted care or might need more supports. But one thing is clear. Everyone living with serious mental illness needs three things. They need health care. They need a home and they need a community. And too often, we work a lot on providing the first two, 
but we don't think enough about the third. And the third really drives people into isolation, social isolation, which can worsen into crisis and often end up in the events that we see uh, and that cause us so much pain and trauma. New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vassen. Mayor Adams also said today the city isn't as safe as it should be. Nevertheless, he also pointed to an uptick in transit ridership, tourism, and office occupancy in the city, and said reports of crime on the subway can create false perceptions. But many New Yorkers say since COVID, the city has been noticeably more tense. Today, the problem of sudden and bloody violence in New York played out near Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. A report from the blog evgrieve.com says an Uber Eats delivery man was slashed in the face Thursday afternoon. He was hospitalized, but his condition was not life-threatening. The reason for the slashing isn't known, but it happened right inside the 7th Street and Avenue A entrance to the park. Pools of blood could be seen along the sidewalk. Chris Flash, a longtime resident of the neighborhood and publisher of The Shadow, a local underground newspaper, spoke to the news about perceptions of safety in the city. Coagulated puddles of blood with some fresh blood in pools as well as oxidated blood, the color brick red. Uh, I'm not a crime expert, but it appears to me that one or more persons collapsed in their pool of blood as blood was pouring over their bodies. A lot of blood splatter, a lot of blood trails, a lot of blood splatter, which indicates a struggle, a tussle, active knifing, fighting, rolling around, collapsing. It's anyone's guess. It was a pretty ugly scene, and and it wasn't like this last night. So somewhere between last night and this morning. I think it happened a short time ago because if the blood is liquid. Good point. Good point. There's this little period where the night people phase into the morning people and. Things happen in that little time period between 4 in the morning and like 7 in the morning, 6 in the morning. That little 2 or 3 hour window, crazy shit goes on. Most people don't know because they're sleeping, getting ready for work the next day. But you're right, the fresh blood indicates that it happened at least, I'd say approximately an hour or two ago. Which puts that at about 3 or 4 o'clock. I'm just an amateur sleuth here, so I don't know. Why is there so much violent crime in New York? Is it more than usual, do you think? Or do you think uh, people are exaggerating it? I don't think it's being exaggerated. I think it's sporadic and random, but there's definitely crazy in the air. And I would attribute it to COVID mania. It's my personal opinion. Ever since COVID, there's been more crazy, a higher level of crazy in our city. And the city had a lot of crazy to begin with. It's gotten crazier since by a factor of at least 10. And it's, it's, you have to really keep your eyes open and be aware of your surroundings. Uh, Chris Flash, a longtime resident of the East Village and publisher of the Shadow newspaper. And finally, it was unclear what they were chatting about, but President Biden blurted out the F-bomb to Mayor Ray Murphy of Fort Myers, where a devastating Hurricane Ian made landfall last week. The president said, no one Fs with a Biden. No one, no one that's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Biden then says, you can't argue with your brother outside the house. The mayor responds, that's exactly right. It was similar to another F-bomb then-Vice President Biden dropped on President Barack Obama after a health care victory. He said, this is a big effing deal. And that's the news for Friday, October 7th, 2022. The news is written and produced by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can find the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.